Would you turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 31? That's page 491 if you have this exact Bible. Page 491, probably not in yours, but you do have 1 Samuel chapter 31. This morning we seek to exposit the meaning and the teachings of this text. It's a text that describes King Saul's fall. It's a text that tells us of Saul and his son's deaths. It's a text where Saul's body is then hung on a wall. And so, appropriately, I've titled this message, The Fall of Saul Who Was Pinned to a Wall, Y'all. Right? We've got to include our southern friends. The Fall of Saul Who Was Pinned to a Wall, Y'all. Now, speaking of being pinned to walls, I remember back in my high school days, joking in the hallway with a friend of mine one afternoon who was a good two feet shorter than I was, and he was Hispanic, and I, of course, was whiter than a box of Q-tips, and and now I'm getting the hairstyle to match, right? And so uh, I'm just one big walking Q-tip is all I'm becoming. But anyway, be that as it may, we had one of those relationships where we could make fun of, of anything about each other, right? And we'd, we'd never become offended. I mean, nothing was off limits. But I found out two very important things about my friend this one particular afternoon that I hadn't previously known. Number one was that he was extremely strong, and somehow he disguised all that strength in his four-foot little man body. And, and the second thing I found out was that making fun of his height, or in this case, the lack of height, was apparently way out of bounds for him. Making fun of each other's mamas, calling each other names, all good, you know, but, but calling him short and all that, that was, that was way over the line. And I remember after calling him short, a, a very brief interaction occurred with him that involved him pinning me against a wall and me soon after losing consciousness. He had thrown me so hard against the wall there in our school that the impact caused me to pass out. I was really a wimp, so I I still am, but I I remember laying on the ground, coming back slowly into consciousness with him standing over me, uh, which wasn't very impressive because, again, he was four foot tall. Uh, I learned nothing from the interaction, but, but I do remember the concern that he had in his eyes. I could tell that he, he instantly regretted his actions. It's funny, but that interaction, it seemed to change the entire dynamic of our relationship going forward. From that point on, we were more noticeably patient with one another, and our relationship experienced growth. It experienced a new gentleness, all because I was first pinned to a wall. Well, there's a story in the Bible that we're going to look at this morning that involves another man. King Saul being pinned to a wall. And it was because of him being pinned to a wall that the entire dynamic of Israel was about to change. With King Saul being pinned to a wall and with his death, a new king, of course, would soon come and take the throne there in Israel. This new king would be King David, in whom Jesus Christ would descend from. Now, before we dive into 1 Sam 31 and see these events, I want to say something very important that relates to the entire Bible. I believe that Jesus Christ is on every page. I believe the scriptures use real life events in the Old Testament, like the ones we're going to read about today, 
to display to us truths found in Christ or, or truths found in the New Testament. And this shouldn't surprise us because that's what Jesus Christ himself said. In, in John 5, 39, he said, You search the scriptures, referring only to the Old Testament at the time, because, he said, you think they give you eternal life, but Jesus said, the scriptures point to me. The Bible is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It all points to his person and to his coming and to his life and to his death and to his resurrection. And so I love teaching through the Old Testament, but I think we do the word of God a disservice. And I do you a disservice if we fail to connect the stories that we read in it to the person of Jesus. Even Charles Spurgeon knew this. He once said, no Christ in your sermon, sir, then go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching. Amen? So as we read this chapter together, we will see how it relates to and foreshadows Jesus Christ. And so with that said, read the story of 1 Sam chapter 31 with me, starting in verse 1. It says, now the Philistines attacked Israel. And the men of Israel fled before them. Many were slaughtered on the slopes of Mount Gilboa. The Philistines closed in on Saul and his sons, and they killed three of his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, <coughs> and the fun one, Melchishua. First off, I've always wondered how Saul, as a parent, started off naming his first son, like with a generic name, like Jonathan, no offense if your name's Jonathan, okay, it's just generic. But, but by the time he gets to his third time, he gets clear out there with his third son. He gets out in left field and he names him the unique Melchishua. How does that happen? And, and what is a Melchishua and why does it sound delicious? No, actually, Saul's son's names, they're, they're very telling about Saul's spiritual condition and how it devolved over his lifetime. And the names of his sons, they, they tell us something about living life. If we too, in the same way as we see Saul in the scriptures did, if we too dislodge God out of our center. See, the name Jonathan, Saul's first son, means Jehovah has given. Saul saw his first son as a gift from the Lord. You could say things between Saul and God at that time in his life were, were good. But then Saul gives birth to Abinadab. Well, not directly, but through his wife, right? You, you know what I mean. The name Abinadab means, my father is noble. In other words, Saul boasts about himself and his own nobility in the name of his second son. And even though this is horrific, and it shows us how the focus of, of Saul's heart shifted from, from honoring God to honoring himself. Um, I think that as we, 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 we see this second son, my father is noble, we see kind of some genius uh, with, with Saul. Like with this kid, my father is noble, like you as dad, you can never be wrong, right? If you have an argument with this kid, if he ever disagrees with you as his father, all you have to say is, hey, What's your name again? And your son would be, uh, he would say, my name is, my father is noble. And, and you as the father would say, exactly, right. Now go and do what I said to do. You could never win. I mean, that's genius. 
But it also shows us, more importantly, the eroding direction of Saul's heart from worship of God to really, essentially, the worship of himself. And then finally, Saul has this third son, and actually Saul had more sons, but this is the last one in the passage and and the last one we're going to look at. But he was named Melchishua. That odd name means my king is wealth or my king is deliverance. Who was the king? Who who wanted to be known as great and and celebrated by all? It, it, It was Saul. And so he names his kid Melchishua as such. Kind of sad to see Saul's self-glorification of himself show up in the names of his kids. And thus is the life of anyone who dislodges God out of the center of their life to then pursue their own interests and their own passions and their own glory apart from God. And see, how is your relationship with the Lord today? Is Jesus the center of your heart? Is he the concentration of your life? Or do you have self-glories before him? Do you have other pursuits that are, that are or have been removing him from your center? As we stew on that, getting back to our text, saw he... He did his own thing, often living by his own rules. He lived in constant rebellion to the Lord. And and that rebellion, that sin, not only ended up in the end costing him his throne, but it also cost him and three of his sons their very lives as well. See, sin is seeking any interest for ourselves that isn't allowed by God, willed by God, or commanded by God. And when I pursue anything that opposes God, or when you place anything at the center of your life that isn't him, you not only hurt yourself so often, but you or I, we often will hurt those who are around us as well. And that is clearly evidence in the scriptural example of Saul and his sons that we have here. And so after the death of Saul and his sons, verse 3 of our passage Continues and it says the fighting grew very fierce around Saul, and the Philistine archers caught up with him and wounded him severely. Rather, this is after the death of just his sons. Saul then, verse 4, groaned to his armor bearer. He said, Take your sword and kill me before these pagan Philistines come to run me through and taunt and torture me. But his armor bearer was afraid and he wouldn't do it. So Saul took his own sword and he fell on it. When his armor-bearer realized that Saul was dead, he fell on his own sword, and he died beside the king. Now, I I love how this translation says that Saul's armor-bearer realized that Saul was dead. Like, I wonder what tipped him off. Do you think it was the large, large sword protruding through his body, or was it the pool of blood that lay around him? Like, that was the alarming realization. Regardless, the armor-bearer falls on his own sword, and then verse 6 says, so Saul his three sons, his armor-bearer, the genius, and his troops all died together that same day. God, through all this, had judged Saul for his rebellion, for his sin. And then shortly after this, things get even worse. Go to the next verse. 
when the Israelites on the other side of the Jezreel Valley and beyond the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled and that saw their king and his sons were dead, they abandoned their towns and fled. So the Philistines moved in and occupied their towns. It was suddenly a buyer's market. Verse 8, the next day, when the Philistines went out to strip the dead, they found the bodies of Saul and his three sons on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off Saul's head and stripped off his armor. In other words, they saw Saul and sawed off his head. Verse 9 goes on and says, After they cut off his head, then they, they proclaimed the good news of Saul's death in their pagan temple and to the people throughout the land of Philistia. The news of Saul's death was quite the headline that day, you could say, right? That was stupid. Okay, verse 10, which is my attempt at a pun. Verse 10, they placed his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths. Ashtoreth was a fertility goddess that the Philistines worshipped. And they fastened his body to the wall of the city of Bet-Shan. Much in the same way that the, the Israelites once kept and displayed Goliath's sword as, as a war trophy. The Philistines, they now display King Saul's armor in their own God's temple. And then additionally, they take Saul's dead, headless body, and they place it on a wall in Bet-Shan. I've actually been to Bet-Shan there in Israel. What's, what's left of it today are the ruins of a city that was Romanized in the 4th century AD. And, and much of the ruins that are there today are toppled over, showing evidence of an earthquake that the city never quite recovered from. But this city has a, a large history. It was settled and resettled by differing people for over literally thousands of years. But there on the edge of the ruins today is what is called the Tell of Bet-Shan. And a Tell, if you're unfamiliar, is an artificial hill, essentially that stratified over debris that was left by previous settlements. Somewhere under that tell, under that hill, is where Saul's body was once taken and pinned to a wall. It, it was surreal, really, when I was there, thinking about this story, standing on top of that hill, being able to see Mount Gilboa, where he was murdered just a short distance away across the Jezreel Valley. But here's the question as we exposit the meaning of this text. Why do the Philistines? come all the way across the valley there and, and hang Saul and his son's bodies on a wall like this. What's with that? Why do they do this? Well, the reason is because to dismember a body and to leave it unburied, that was, that was the height of disgrace. That was the height of shame for the victim and for their family and for their nation if that victim happened to be the king. The Philistines, man, they, they wanted to disgrace Saul and his lineage. Well, in response to that great disgrace, the cursing of Saul, verse 11 says, But when the people of Jabesh Gilead, I like these guys, when they heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all their mighty warriors traveled through the night to Bethshan and took the bodies of Saul and his sons down from the wall. They brought them to Jabesh, where they buried the bodies. Then they took their bones and buried them beneath the tamarisk tree at Jabesh, and they fasted for seven days. Let's unpack this amazing portion of Scripture, and then we will be 
through this morning. We've already seen some, some practical stuff. Things like seeing where dislodging God from the center of our hearts and lives will lead us. And we've also seen in the death of Saul where rebellion and, and self-glory ultimately take us. But where is Jesus in all of this? Well, after Saul is killed, and after his body is abused and stripped of its possessions, after his head is lopped off, the Bible says that the people of Jabesh-Gilead, they mobilize themselves to recover Saul's dead body. But what moved these people from Jabesh-Gilead to risk their lives and, and remember their fallen and now cursed king like this? What caused Jabesh-Gilead to march throughout the night to recover his body? Well, we got to know a little about Saul's history as king to answer this very important question. And in answering this question, it'll be worth our while because in understanding how the people of Jabesh-Gilead responded to and related to their king, who became a curse, we will pick up some pretty amazing principles in how we should respond to and relate to our king today, King Jesus, who was made a curse for us so that we could be saved. See, 40 years before this story in 1 Samuel, Saul was anointed as king of the people of Israel. Certain Israelites, they applauded the fact that he was named king, while others desired to, to not have this no-name farm boy rule over them. And so Saul, having a country divided over him, becoming king, he decides, you know, I'm going to play it safe for a while, and I'm going to go home for a little bit. I'm going to go to Gibeah. So he goes back to the farm for a while. He's letting things cool down a bit. But then there's an enemy. There's an enemy ruler. His name was Nahash, a name that, a name that literally means serpent. And Nahash, he went up and he besieged. He attacked the town of Jabesh-Gilead, which was an Israelite city on the east side of the Jordan River. It was here that Nahash told the people of Jabesh-Gilead that he would not kill them if they would make a treaty with him. And this treaty had one condition, and that condition was that Nahash would be allowed to gouge out the right eye of every man in the city. So the people of Jabesh-Gilead, as you can imagine, they took a vote, and they voted all nays and no eyes. Okay, bad pun, never mind. But, but why, I'm done. <laughs> why did Nahash, why did snake man, serpent, want to gouge out the right eye of the men of Jabesh-Gilead? Well, the reason is because every man who could fight would fight with their right hand, and they would hold a shield with their left, and having no right eye would incapacitate these men from fighting. To fight without the right eye would mean that they would have to leave larger portions of their body exposed as they would peer over their shield. They would have to strain with the only eye they had left to see the enemy, so they would be at a, a stark disadvantage. It would take them out of the fight. But now Nahash, a name again that means serpent, turns out he's much like our own adversary named Satan, whom appeared in the Garden of Eden as a serpent. There's a lot of similarities between these two adversaries. 
See, Satan, like Nahash, is, is always seeking to blind. He's seeking to incapacitate people from knowing or serving King Jesus and his army. He wants to take you out of the battle. He wants to take you out of the fight. Well, in dealing with Nahash in the story here in the Bible, one of the elders of, of Jabesh Gilead, he speaks up and he asks Nahash to, to give them seven days to send messengers throughout Israel to find an army to come and rescue them. Nahash, who's not only a snake, but also an idiot, he incredibly agrees to this. And he says, okay, you have seven days to find a rescuer. Now, why in the world would Nahash agree to do this? Well, two reasons, I believe. One, I think he was overconfident and arrogant. And two, I, I believe that Nahash knew the not-so-secret history of Jabesh Gilead, and he didn't think anyone in a million years would ever come to their defense, not even fellow Israelites. Why is that? Well, we got to go back even farther in the Bible. Judges 19. In that chapter, we see a horrible story about a Levite cutting up the body of his dead concubine, his wife. He cuts her up into 12 pieces. Horrible things had previously been done to this concubine the night before in the land of Israel, and horrible things were done to her by a tribe of Benjamites, Israelites. She was raped by a gang of Benjamites all night and then left for dead on the doorstep of where her husband, this Levite, was staying. And so this Levite angered, and to prove a point, he cuts up his concubine wife into 12 pieces, and he sends one piece to each of the 12 tribes of Israel. How would you like to get that this Christmas as a package in, in the mail? And all of Israel, as you can imagine, they are enraged by this. And they all meet together and they decide, you know what, together we are going to wipe out the Benjamites, this tribe of Israel who has committed these horrible atrocities in our own land. Israel then made a covenant that day and they said that any city that failed to assemble at this council that they were having in response to this atrocity, any city that failed to come would be put to death as well. Guess what city didn't come to the party? The people of Jabesh Gilead. No one from their city showed up. And so in response, 12,000 fighting men from Israel, they were sent to Jabesh Gilead to kill all the men all the women, all the children, only the virgins were spared. Well, once this city was thriving somewhat again, Nahash, this evil ruler later on, he comes and he besieges Jabesh Gilead. And he knew the bad history of this city and that it was outcasted amongst the rest of Israel. He knew they had a bad name. And so Nahash no doubt believed that because of this, no one would come to the aid of these people. But see, what Nahash, what he didn't count on was the mercy of a king. What he didn't count on was the mercy of the newly appointed king, King Saul. The Bible says that when word came to Saul, 
in the dawn of his new reign as king when he was there on the family farm that these Israelites in Jabesh Gilead were about to have their eyes plucked out. The Bible says that the spirit of the Lord came upon Saul. The Bible says that Saul then took oxen and he cut them up into 12 pieces and he sent these pieces to each of the 12 tribes of Israel in the same way that the Levite did with his concubine years before. Along with the cut up pieces of an oxen, Saul sent to each of the tribes a message that said, this is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel to save the people of Jabesh Gilead. They'll be cut into pieces like this, in other words. Essentially, the takeaway there, the same circumstances and methods that once rallied the Israelites together to extinguish the people of Jabesh Gilead are now being used by King Saul to save the people of Jabesh Gilead. This is an amazing example of the mercy of a king. And so 330,000 men of Israel, they got the message and, and they showed up for Saul ready to fight Nahash. Saul and his army then marched all night to the city of Jabesh Gilead. And when they got there, they slaughtered Nahash, they slaughtered the city's enemies, they saved all the people. And now we come to 1 Samuel 31. And the people of Jabesh Gilead never forgot King Saul's mercy and kindness. Some 40 years later, Saul now lies dead, decapitated, naked, and hung on a wall in Bet Shan. And so reminiscent of Saul's former mercy to them, the people of Jabesh Gilead, they risk their own lives. And at great potential risk to themselves, they march all night to remove Saul's dead body from the wall. Parenthetically, in a sort of a smaller application to be made here, there is a principle all throughout the Bible of reaping what you sow. If you sow corn seeds, you're going to harvest corn, right? A big lump with knobs. If you, if you plant apple tree seeds, you're going to get apple seeds. If you, if you sow disgusting mustard seeds, you're going to sow disgusting mustard, right? And Someone is inevitably, inevitably going to make that into a paste and they're going to put it on their hot dog like a mad person and they need to be shown ketchup and they should use that instead. Amen? Thank you. Okay, I, that's off my chest. But spiritually, <laughs> if you plant good seeds and you bless others, you will generally reap a good harvest and receive blessing back. But the same can be said if we plant bad seeds. Generally, if we do wrong, we should expect to harvest wrong things. You reap what you sow. The justice of God is not mocked. But of all the things King Saul did wrong in his life, despite all his failures and bad seeds sown, Saul, he got this one thing right. He planted good seeds by being merciful to the people of Jabesh Gilead. And then 40 years later, he reaps his harvest. The Bible says in Galatians 6, 9, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. And see, 
Have you been sowing? Have you been sowing good seeds? Have you been doing good and have you been being faithful to the Lord? Maybe you look around at times and and, and you see no harvest and, and you wonder why. And actually, for some of us, it seems like the more good you do or the more faithfully you serve the Lord, the worse your your circumstances sometimes get. But can I encourage you this morning by telling you what the Bible says, and that's do not grow weary in doing good. Because at just the right time, at God's time, at his appointed time, that's the proper time, you will reap a harvest. That perfect time for Saul to reap his harvest was after he had died and his lifeless body then hung on a wall. You may not be on a wall this morning hanging, but perhaps you feel like your back is up against one. Trust the Lord even now. Believe that your good seeds will in fact reap a harvest, but while you wait, You must trust God with the timing. We have a saying in my home that that I've used so often that my girls have memorized it. And we say, if you do good things, good things will happen. If you do bad things, bad things will happen. I've instilled in my girls, of course, generally speaking, if you do good, good things will occur as a result. If you study, if you read, if you pay attention in school, you'll get good grades. But if you mess around and you sleep in class, chances are you'll fail. You reap what you sow. And the same is true for all of us as we live our lives as well. Do good, don't grow weary in doing good, and again, generally speaking, good things will happen. There are, of course, exceptions to this principle, and for that, we have the case study of the book of Job. Amen? But now to conclude, let me me show you how this passage speaks of Christ. The the parallels are undeniable, and and let us gleam from the wisdom of the people of Jabesh-Gilead and how they relate to their king. May we, as a result, relate to our king, the greater than King Saul, Jesus Christ, in these same ways. See, when the, when the people of Jabesh Gilead, when they took Saul's body off that wall in Beth Shan after traveling all night, they t- take him back to Jabesh and they burn his body because it was, it was in such a beat up and broken state. And then they, they buried Saul's bones under a tamarisk tree. And, and, and see, My question, are are we as Christians not unlike these people from Jabesh Gilead? Because many of us travel, maybe not all night, but at least a portion of our mornings each and every week to do what? To remember our king who was nailed not to a wall but to a tree. People often come from miles and miles away to attend a church and to be part of a body of worship. While most everyone else in our culture stays home on Sunday mornings, sleeping in, mowing their lawn, going to the lake, planting their gardens, many of you often choose to be in a worship service with the body of Christ instead. And you come to do 
what Christians throughout history and throughout the world have done Sunday after Sunday, week after week, year after year, decade after decade. You come to remember your king. You, like the people of Jabesh Gilead, you remember what your king did for you, not 40 years prior, but what he did for you on the cross 2,000 years prior. And not just that, but you come to remember what your king is, is currently doing in your lives, and you come to remember what he will do when he comes again. You come, and you worship him, And when you come, you even confess a willingness to pour out your life as a living sacrifice unto him because because he was the one who first rescued you. And because of this, even though it's been years removed, you haven't forgotten your king. Like the people of Jabesh Gilead, each Sunday or, or each chapel here at Nebraska Christian, we remember our king who was nailed, who was spit on, who was mocked. Like King Saul, our king was nailed not to a wall, but to the wooden cross on Calvary's hill. Our king, who became even worse than Saul because of his love for us, was nailed to a tree. King Saul, at his death, he was judged of God. Saul was a rebellious man. He disobeyed God. He got involved in witchcraft. It's it's awful who King Saul was. Even cursed in the very end. Likewise, it's awful who Jesus became on our behalf. The Bible says, cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. Likewise, Scripture says God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, our king, became a curse and took upon himself the sins of the world. He took on to himself all the sins of humanity. He became sin. 1 John 2, 2, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also the sins of the world. I'm almost done. And God the Father who looked on King Saul and had to judge him for his sins through his death looked upon Christ, our King, who became sin, and he judged Jesus in the same way he judged King Saul. Jesus was pinned to the cross naked, his humility ugly, his agony unbelievable. But in his agony, he rescued us, saving us from the penalty and the payment of sin. And so, we come. We come to remember him often as our king, our king who first rescued us. While others are out there forgetting about him, continuing on with their lives, disregarding him as the other 11 tribes of Israel were doing when, when King Saul was killed, here you are, like those of Jabesh Gilead, remembering Jesus, your king, this very morning. 
And see, I hope that when you see chapel on the schedule each Wednesday, I, I hope you look forward to it. I hope that when Sunday morning comes, you look forward to worshiping in your own churches. Because each and every week, you and I, we get the amazing privilege of coming to remember the king of our rescue. The king who saved you from a greater enemy than Nahash, the man named Serpent who came to Jabesh Gilead to blind and incapacitate. Your king traveled to and traveled upon this earth to save you from the grasp of the enemy and from the reality of God's coming wrath upon sinners who do the enemy's bidding. And your king did all that for you, even though you, like the people of Jabesh Gilead, were undeserving. See, we are the ones living on the wrong side of the Jordan River spiritually like those living in Jabesh Gilead were physically. We are the ones who lived in disobedience to the king. We're the ones who fail to show up for the fight and instead stay home. We don't deserve the kindness nor the mercy of a king that travels as he did in history to save us. And we don't deserve a king who battled and destroyed a foe like Nahash. Nahash, in our story, he believed he had won and that the city of Jabesh Gilead would forever be blinded and placed under his authority. And much like him, Satan has convinced many in this world, perhaps even some in this room, that, that they are too far gone, that they are beyond the mercy and grace of God. That because of your former sins, there is not a rescuer in this world who would risk their own welfare to save you. But Nahash didn't count on the mercy of a king. And much like him, Satan, the accuser of the brethren, he has to likewise contend with the mercy of a greater king, the king, King Jesus Christ. You see, the devil may succeed in, in laying siege to your life. He may succeed in backing you into seemingly inescapable corners. He may threaten to darken your vision and take you out of the fight, but the devil has to contend with the great mercy of our Lord and of our King, Jesus Christ. Amen? Our King, who traveled all night, so to speak, to willingly and lovingly and mercifully free you from the grip of that enemy. King Jesus has come to preserve your purpose and your sight. King Jesus has come to give you life. And see, will you therefore remember him? Will you willingly and excitedly come to services like this one to honor him? The Apostle Paul knew what it was to have gratitude for his king, and so I'll leave you with this, this same exhortation that he gave to the church in Rome so many years ago. May we apply this as we go forth and, and live this morning. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, And so, dear brothers and sisters, and so, students and, and teachers of Nebraska Christian, I plead with you, 
to give your bodies to God because of all he's done for you. Let them be a willing and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and the customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Amen? Father, I, uh, I thank you for this student body. I thank you for their teachers, their administrators. Father, ultimately we come in, in thanksgiving for Jesus Christ, our King who saved us from the wrath that would befall us for our sin, from the deceptions of the enemy, from the many perils, Lord, that we would have ultimately succumbed to had it not been for the mercy of you, King Jesus. Father, our, our hope and our faith is in you, and I pray for any in here whose hope is not that they see the sufficiency and the glory and that they would see just, just the, the awe of God and, and of his son, Jesus. That, Father, they would be wooed by you into repentance and into faith. That, Father, their relationship with you would prosper that they would know you, that every barrier of sin through faith in Christ would be removed. And Father, that they would realize the life and the purpose that you have for them in Christ. Lord, we remember you this morning. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.